Greg will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even see you. When, when we approach Scripture, when we approach the Bible, I think a lot of times we approach it looking at the individual stories in it. How many times do we think about it or approach it keeping in mind that the Bible tells one story? Now, yes, there are little stories in it, but it tells one ultimate, all-embracing, all-encompassing story. Of course, that story begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. Now, from Genesis to Revelation, God is telling one story, and that story is His burden to save a fallen human race through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think it's important that we always keep that in mind as we dive into the Bible, as we go from one chapter to the next, or from one story to the next, that we keep that in mind, that all these little stories end up telling one big story. And they help us to understand the big story. And I want to keep the big story in mind as we kind of continue a study that I started some time back in Joshua. I just can't get out of Joshua, so we're going we're gonna to stay in it for a while. So if you would, go ahead and turn to, uh, to Joshua chapter 2. Now, as we look at Joshua, I'll, in, in the big storyline, I'll try to... Uh, what's happened really fast is, of course, it's been about 40 years since the Hebrews have been delivered by God out of Egypt. Remember, God had buried Moses in a secret place in one of the valleys of Moab. And God has appointed Joshua, the new leader. And now Joshua and all the people stand ready to enter the promised land. And the first thing that Joshua does is he remembers something that happened 40 years ago about spying out the land. So he sends two spies. This is in Joshua chapter 2. Verses 1, beginning in verse 1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. Now, quick summary. I've said this before, that this was flood stage, uh, flood season. So the Jordan River was at its highest area of flooding. So they probably traveled north uh, to where they could cross the river easier. Uh, they crossed the river, would have headed southwest so that they could enter the Jordan, so that they could attempt to sneak into Jericho, probably from the west side, which would have been opposite Israel, who was on the east. And although, and they thought they got into Jericho unnoticed, and they went to hide themselves in the house of a prostitute. And we've got to think about this. This was two men who were not experts at being spies. They were not experts at reconnaissance. Even though, you know, we look at some Bible notes and we refer to them as spies, we've got to be careful not to read our own 
understanding, our own modern day perspective when we read about these spies. These guys were not James Bond, Ethan Hunt, or Jason Bourne. Not, not even close. They were inexperienced, and it really cost them in a big way. We read on, Joshua 2, verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. But they hadn't even been there overnight, probably just a few hours before the news makes it back to the king of Jericho. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. Now, did these spies complete their mission? I mean, Joshua told them, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. Well, at least my take is they don't seem like they really succeeded all that well. They just made it to Jericho. They didn't spy out the entire land. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that although 40 years earlier the 12 spies were actually named, these two spies weren't even named. They remain unknown to us. And really, the, I guess the, the fact of the matter is that, that their most important value to us is that they lead us to Rahab. When they eventually get back and give their report to Joshua, well, everything they tell him about Jericho, they had just learned from Rahab. Yeah, and this tells us an important thing. Their choice of Rahab's house wasn't just some foolish miscalculation of two novice, unskilled spies. This was an orchestration an expression of divine providence. I mean, their inexperience and just happening to stumble upon Rahab's house was really nothing less than a direct outworking of the saving purposes of God Himself. God saved those two spies, of course, so they could take their knowledge, go back to Joshua, and enable the people to conquer the land of Canaan. So it was to save the people of Canaan to enter into the promised land. But it was also to display another side of salvation. The two spies end up at Rahab's house because our God loves to save the lowly, the despicable, the broken. I mean, I can say that it's true in my case. I mean, think God wasn't getting anything good when He got me. He wasn't getting anything that would benefit Him in any way, shape, or form. I don't bring any value to God. I don't. But He rescued me. He saved me. And I think at times we often forget the place from which we were rescued and who we would be, what we would be, if it weren't for God. And one thing that this reminds me of is that we must never, ever, ever look down upon or turn our noses up at people like Rahab. Because in one sense or another, we were like her. And yet, 
what fills us with hope now is that our God is absolutely relentless in His passionate pursuit to save sinners, to save us, to save bad people. Why does God save bad people? Doing so reveals the glory of His grace and the broad, expansive boundaries of His love. Now, completely unbeknownst to the spies, and yet as a consequence of their bumbling, almost like an Inspector Clouseau type of bumbling, where they fall into the answer, the two show up at Rahab's house because God is determined to transform this prostitute. Mm -hmm. But, as we go through the story, things don't look too good for the spies. In Joshua 2, verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said to the king, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out. And I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate of the city was shut. So what about the Hebrew spies? They were safe and secure at the moment. But we're left with a little bit of a problem here. Uh, my grandmother would call it a quandary. Uh, their safety and Rahab's first act of faith was telling somebody a lie. How do we address that? And actually she told three lies wrapped up in one. First, she said she did not know where they came from. And then she said the spies had already left the city. And then she said she didn't know where they were going. So, does this mean that it is okay to lie in certain circumstances? Maybe extreme circumstances? I mean, I personally do not think so. Uh, Calvin had this to say. He says... Uh, as to the falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for good, for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. And he says, on the whole, it was the will of God that the spy should be delivered. But that does not mean that God approved of saving their lives, saving their lives through a lie, through a falsehood. Now, the Scripture, of course, does record several saints and their lies. Abraham lied. Uh, of course, Scripture never approves of that deception. Uh, God's Word uniformly condemns lies, condemns falsehoods, and calls us all <coughs> to be men and women of truth. So when we look at this, we must look behind the action to the motive. And of course, we've got to look at Who's our ultimate example? It's not Rahab. It's Christ. And of course, 
he provides us with a supreme example of truthfulness. Our Lord never lied, never deceived anyone. And as members of the body of Christ, we're obligated to do our best to live according to His example. And we must also remember, it's got to hold a lot of things together, we must also remember that that nowhere in the Bible does an inspired writer judge the method employed by Rahab. But what Scripture does point out is her motive. That's what's brought forward. And in fact, when the book of Hebrews and James speak of this story, they stress the fact that Rahab did what she did acting on the basis of faith. And we got faith. Rahab had faith? Wait a minute. How could Rahab have faith? We've got to back up a minute. Faith is a a word, a verb in the English language that requires an object. We would call it, the formal term would be it's a transitive verb. You can't just say, I have faith, really. You have to say, I have faith in something. You must have faith in something. Now, Rahab wasn't a Jew. She was an Amorite. She had not read the book of Genesis. She had not been with the Jews as they followed the cloud by day or the fire by night. She had never seen the tablets of stone written with the Ten Commandments engraved on them. She had not tasted the daily manna from heaven. So what kind of a faith could she have? Where could it come from? So here are three facts that help us explain Rahab's faith. And the first is that she heard testimony about God. Listen to her own words in verse 8. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you, before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. Now, this is almost so obvious, it's easy to miss. God had brought to Rahab a testimony. God had brought to Rahab a witness about himself. And by and by, he begins to use it for the purpose of creating faith in her heart. It begins to transform her, to change her, to fill her for the first time with a possibility of hope. I mean, no doubt her own life situation, I'm sure, contributed to her hope in this testimony. Think about how she had managed to eke out 
in existence. She was a prostitute, a piece of property to be purchased, to be exploited, and then to be tossed aside. So she knew the underbelly of life in ways we probably can't even imagine. But by and by, she begins to hear bits and pieces about the God of the Hebrews, the Lord God Yahweh, Elohim, who time and time again in powerful, powerful ways has displayed steadfast love to the people who belong to Him. Saving them, delivering them, protecting them. And she begins to think to herself, maybe this God who loves his people so deeply and saves them so mightily, perhaps this God is God. By the way, how did Rahab get this information? How did she come across this testimony? Did she find a Gideon Bible in her hotel room? <laughs> I don't think so. And the text doesn't tell us clearly, but maybe it was from the men with whom she did business. Men who would have known of life outside of Jericho. You see, when God is intent on saving someone, He's not beyond using our own sin to bring us to Himself. Which is an amazing thought. So, first I said, Rahab heard testimony about God. Second, she acknowledges this God, the God of the Hebrews, as God. Look at verse 11. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now imagine, just imagine for a minute, you're eating a snow cone on the hottest day of the year in the middle of the afternoon in the desert in Death Valley. Almost immediately that snow cone is going to melt away into nothingness. Mm -hmm. Nothing. And that is the action. That's what's being described here when she says that we lost heart and everyone's courage failed. She's saying Confidence in our own power, confidence in our strength, confidence in our might has melted away into nothingness when confronted with the terrifying power of Yahweh. Our spirit went out from us. We lost heart. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This, this is a confession of faith. Probably one of the most definitive, well-formed confessions of faith you'll find anywhere in Scripture. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She acknowledged that the God of the Hebrews is the universal sovereign. The God who is God in heaven above and the God who is God on earth below. Now, what she said should really be refreshing to us 
in our time and age because it didn't have any hint of the subjectivity that we see nowadays. She didn't say, well, to me, he's a God in heaven and on earth. And there's no postmodern ambiguity. She didn't say, ah, he's the God in heaven above and on earth below, I think. And there's no political correctness, no political inclusivism. She didn't say, he's the God in heaven above and on earth below, but of course this doesn't exclude any other God. She didn't say that. Out of the mouth of this lowly prostitute came an astounding confession. And I wish that we would hear more confessions as clear as concise, as straightforward as this. An open confession of faith. But, once we get to this point and we hear her confession of faith, it raises a very interesting question. Why didn't any of the other Amorites respond positively? Because they did respond. But why didn't they respond positively to this testimony about God? They all received it. Notice the pronouns here. I know that the Lord God has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, before you completely, you, the kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. So what does this tell us? This testimony was not secretly confined to Rahab. Everybody in town knew about it, was talking about it. They had all heard about the parting of the Red Sea. They had all heard about God's judgment on the Amorite kings. The people were in dread. So not only was their intellectual knowledge and understanding, they had the possession of knowledge. There was an emotional thing going on too. They could comprehend what was going on just outside the walls of Jericho. There was fear and dread in their hearts. God was there and judgment was coming. So now, why do I point this out? So that you will realize that the people of Jericho could never claim ignorance as an excuse for not submitting themselves to God. They could never say, we never knew we never heard. No one ever told us. Wrong. The point is that they defiantly persisted in their refusal to believe, even in the face of ample information and opportunity. They refused. They resisted. They rejected God. Well, that raises another question. Why did Rahab believe? 
Why does she respond in faith to the testimony about God? Was she more spiritually sensitive than all the other Amorites? I don't think so. No. Was it because she was more morally upright than all the other Amorites? No. Well, maybe she was raised in a home where she heard the word of God, unlike all the Amorites. So, no. Why does Rahab respond in faith when everybody else repudiates? Well, there's a story of another woman in the Bible, Lydia. One day, she heard the Apostle Paul preach the gospel. And you might recall what the text says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, to respond to what was spoken by Paul. She responded to Paul's message. And no one ever goes to heaven without responding to a gospel message. But she heard it. She understood it. She embraced it. Why? Well, Luke tells us. Because the Lord opened her heart to respond. And this means that her experience of God's grace was not a consequence of her faith, but her faith was a consequence of God's grace. Grace and faith, they're very tightly intertwined. But we can't ever forget the divine chronology. Grace is the root out of which faith emerges as the fruit. And the same thing in Rahab. God was doing something in Rahab for whatever reason that he wasn't doing in the rest of the Amorites. Now I've got to point out that God did not create negative faith in the Amorites and the rest of them. He just left them to their own precious free will. And according to their own free will, they chose in the very same way that all unbelievers of all time will choose if left unaided by the grace of God. Well, this brings us to the third point. I said Rahab heard the testimony about God. And then she acknowledges this God as God. And then finally, as an act of faith, she seeks deliverance from the judgment of God. In verse 12, she says, Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. Rahab knew judgment was coming. And what else did she know? Maybe more than anybody else. She knew the guilt of the city, the guilt of the people, and she knew her own guilt. And she knows what God can do to those who are his enemies. 
And what I find fascinating about this is that never once, never once does she challenge or question or dispute God in His actions in what He is doing. Never once does she challenge or ask why. She doesn't say, why is God so mean? Or why does God destroy entire cities? Rahab never finds fault with God because she knows judgment is deserved. I think sometimes we might even tend to teach a wrong idea about grace. How many times have you heard, or maybe you've even said it, described grace as God's favor to undeserving people? I bet everybody's probably heard it described like that. Grace is God's favor to undeserving people. Do you realize that that is wrong? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Why? Because we are not undeserving people, are we? We deserve something, but we are ill-deserving. We deserve judgment. And I think until we grasp that, until we understand that, we really don't know, can't truly comprehend what the grace of God is. Grace is God's favor to ill-deserving people. We are not undeserving, but deserving of judgment. Rahab knew that, and there wasn't the slightest hint of accusation against God. She simply said, save us from the impending judgment. And the men answered her in verse, verse 14, we will give our lives for yours if you don't report our mission. We will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. And down in verse 21, Rahab responds back, let it be as you say. And you know the story. I'm going to skip all the way to chapter 6. The day arrives. God's people march around the city seven times. The trumpets sound. The people shout. The walls of the city come crumbling and crashing to the ground. But before that takes place, Joshua's instructions are clear. Look in chapter 6, verse 17. But the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab and the prostitute, only Rahab the prostitute and everyone with her in the house will live because she hid the men we sent. Now watch what happens. Verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout, great shout and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. Down in verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. 
They settled them outside the covenant community, at arm's distance. But that would not always be the case. Look down at verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho. And she lives, she's in the midst of Israel to this day. She lives in Israel. She's on the inside. She's an internal part of the covenant community now. This lives in. It's a seemingly insignificant detail. That little preposition in. But the implications are huge. She's brought inside. She's a part of the family of God. This, it's a nice ending to a nice, interesting story. But why is it in the Bible to begin with? Ask yourself this question. How would my Christian life be different how would my life be less? What would be deficit in my life? Deficient, sorry, in my life if this story was stripped out of the Bible? As you think about that, let me remind you about this. Rahab was not a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile a despised outsider in the days of Jesus. They were referred to as Gentile dogs. But way back, as we take our step back now, look at the big picture. Back in the book of Genesis, God made a promise to Father Abraham when he said, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You know, it was never God's intention to confine the blessing of salvation only to the people of Israel. It was really through the people of Israel that salvation would come to the nations. And we see that right here where salvation came to Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile. Not only that, a prostitute. And she was brought inside the covenant community. You know, it's no accident that almost every time Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, she's mentioned as Rahab the prostitute. But why does the Bible do this? I mean, it's not to demean Rahab, but it's to heighten our understanding of the grace of God. Why Rahab the prostitute? Rahab the prostitute. Why is that brought in front of us? Oh, it's to help us remember and think about God's grace to Rahab. What he granted to her, what he gave to her, was even infinitely more than she had asked. And if you think about it, what he's given to us is infinitely more than we understood when we first came to faith. It's infinitely more than we had ever asked for. What he will give us is infinitely more than we can ever ask. 
What was Rahab's plea? All that she asked for was to save us from death. Well, Rahab was saved physically from the destruction of Jericho, yes. But beyond that, Rahab was saved spiritually from eternal condemnation. She was brought, I keep saying it, inside the covenant community. And not only that, but she appears in that great catalog of faith in Hebrews 11. And finally, I want to mention one other point, and that's that Rahab was saved. I guess the best way to put it would be uh, historically, socially. Uh, think about the genealogies that we all tend to skip over as we're reading through Scripture. We skip over the names we can't pronounce. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And we just read through that without thinking about it. But have you ever asked, why are these genealogies here? What purpose do they serve? Well, especially the one in the opening chapters of the very first book of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. We come across such a genealogy. And there, surprisingly, we come across Rahab's name once again. We come across the story of how Rahab ended up marrying a prince. In, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the man that she married, Solomon, his father was a prince, so he would have been a prince. She ends up marrying a prince. Rahab marries a man by the name of Salmon. Together, they have a son named Boaz, who marries a girl by the name of Ruth. And they have a great grandson by the name of David, who becomes King David, in whose line comes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> What was Rahab's request? Save us from death. And God delivers Rahab in a far greater way than she could have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. He gives her the privilege of using her womanhood no longer to abuse herself, but to fulfill Scripture, mm -hmm. to fulfill prophecy, to become a part of the Messianic line engrafted into the lineage of her own Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, this Christian God, the magnificent God, the generous God, is the God who loves sinners, is the God who loves bad people. Wow. And you know, this needs to be the church, the message of the church. We all have walked a path in one sense or another like Rahab. We were sinners. We are sinners. We've been bad people. And God changed our hearts. God gave us faith. We need to take this message. We need to proclaim this message. We need to be able to take the steps just like 
people did. Somehow, Rahab heard testimony. So, are we speaking a testimony to others that are like Rahab? Are we speaking a testimony to others? Rahab took a step of faith and acknowledged God as God. In our lives, in our actions, are we doing things where people will see that we are acknowledging God as God in the words that we say? And in all of our situations, are we crying out to God to save us? to help us walk through this situation or that situation? Are we looking to God in every moment to help us? Save us from death? Let's pray. Lord, Father, we thank you so much that you love sinners, that you loved Rahab, that you touched her heart through your grace and gave her faith so that she became a part of the covenant community. Thank you that we can look back on the story and see how you did a far greater thing in her than she could have ever imagined or asked for. And how we can take that and know that you're going to do far greater things in our lives than we could ever ask for. Oh. Father, thank you for a Savior who transforms bad people into good people. Give us a desire to proclaim this message. Father, may we be known as a church that reaches out to, that loves sinners, that loves bad people, and that relentlessly proclaims a gospel message that you can use to transform people, that you can use to bring people into the covenant community you can use to bring people into the church. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this story about Rahab because without it we would severely lack in our understanding of how great your grace is. So we thank you, Father, for this. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.